Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest-cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, you can't get fooled again. Welcome to the show, everyone. I am Ben Kissel with Marcus Parks. Uh, as always, how you doing, Marcus? I'm doing good, Ben. How about you? I'm good. I'm thrilled. We have our guest in that I love very much. I've uh, been on Red Eye with him a bunch, and I think we've done the Kennedy Show a lot. His name is Camille Foster, and he's got a great podcast called uh, What the Fifth Estate, the Fifth Column, the damn Fifth it. Column. There we go. If I don't mess up the intro, it's going to be a horrible show. <laughs> it's sort of one of the traditions we have here on Abe Lincoln Stop at. So thanks for being here, Camille. Absolutely. Thank you for the uh, invitation. Yeah. So we've done a lot of stuff together. Um, you're huge. I guess uh, you identify as a libertarian. Is that right? Sure. Okay, but you don't really love it. You're not a hard L libertarian, a big L. Um, I'm not a cap. Well, I guess capital L libertarian usually means you're a member of the libertarian right. party, which I don't believe I currently am. Okay. Um, but I am definitely a philosophically a libertarian. I usually describe it uh, as living somewhere between uh, Rothbardistan and Nozickville. Like that is my. Are those my made politics. up names? <laughs> um, yes, they are, but they are based on something and people who know. We'll yeah. know exactly what that is. Everyone else does not want me to explain that. I no. would like you to explain that. No, Nose no, his no. hand? <laughs> I don't know. It seems wild to me. No, no. They don't they don't want to hear. That. Yes. So what got you into politics? What got you into libertarian politics? We're gonna get into some fake news and things like that, and we want to talk about race issues because we're forced to. Yes. Um, this is you know, because we have someone who has who was the who has an opinion on them, and, and I think that that's what's so powerful. Uh, so, what got you into the libertarian side of politics, uh, and and do you find it? Uh, you know, it's interesting because you're you're regular on Fox News, and a lot of people just refuse to even go on that network sure. and express their points of view because they find they find the brand to be so uh, toxic, specifically towards uh, the African American community. Hmm. So, what uh, you know, what what are your thoughts on uh, on politics, and how'd you get to where you are now? Uh, well, the, the observation about the African-American community is interesting. We will get to that later. Good. Um, the In terms of sort of my interest in politics more generally, I have no idea why that's a thing. Um, I, I have always been sort of interested in governance. Yeah. Um, that was a, a subject I did pretty well in, in high school, et cetera. Um, I, but I don't really know why it became the thing. The, the moment that stands out to me is being at University of Maryland College Park, go Terps, okay. and going home for sort of that winter break and watching C-SPAN religiously and finding that I was enjoying this. Like, this was actually exciting and stimulating. Yeah, C-SPAN is um, shockingly exciting. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. No, it just really, it really, really is. And, and you know, I, I think more than anything else, what motivated me is I wanted to be right about everything mm -hmm. and I wanted to win every argument. So uh, 
I, I paid a hell of a lot of attention, um, and I, I tried to read pretty ferociously, right. and uh, sort of eventually discovered some authors like uh, Milton Friedman um, and uh, Nozick, who who wrote a, a book called Anarchy, State, and Utopia, hmm. um, and uh, pu- found publications like Reason and Cato and just consume those it. things and uh yeah i mean it, well, it's sort of what got me here i mean there's there's other personal details that that might be interesting but i'm probably going to save most of that for the biography well what is one personal detail that you think might be interesting um i am a scots jamaican okay uh, which which is to say that my uh my mother's maiden name is tulla t-u-l-l-o-c-h mm-hmm. she is from scotland uh, well her her great-grandfather my great-grandfather, her grandfather, is from Scotland. He moved to Jamaica. He found a woman and sired children with her. And well, I, am, now, I, am a, I am a product of his, his loins. No, from what I understand there, that was a bit of an aggressive courtship. Uh, <laughs> no. The, the, the Scots-Jamaican, it wasn't. No, it was not, it because was you, not you get, aggressive. Because you get the feeling that it could, be, it could have gone the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, but not, I mean, not with my great-grandfather. So there was love in the room. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe at a minimum there was lust and that's good. There is no indication that it was rape, although standards change. Absolutely. Well, I only trust authors named Milton and I don't like the Terps because turtles ate the boys of the West Memphis. (laughs) They actually ate the children who were dead there. So turtles are quite malicious. Terrapins terrapins are pretty uh, ravenous. But you were talking, they are, you were talking about uh, always wanting to be right. And I think that leads us to a nice topic. Now, when it comes to fake news, when it comes to social media, when it comes to the internet, the access that we all have on our cell phones on a daily basis, the idea of an argument has now changed because oftentimes someone will, uh, you know, spout off about uh, a, a topic that they think they know about, and another person will regurgitate what they think they know about the topic. Both of them will go to their Google and they'll find a completely different uh, resolution to their conflict. Yeah. How has that changed uh, your opinion uh, when it comes to uh, politics, when it comes to arguments uh, in general, and how dangerous is it that people are so willing to trust an argument that they believe to be correct simply because it backs up an argument that they're so passionate about, regardless of facts or not? which is sort of what brings us to this quote-unquote, I'm a bit sick of the uh, cliche at this point, but brings us to this fake news phenomenon. Yeah, I I think there were three questions there, but I'm not exactly sure. But I know it has something to do with fake news. Uh, I'll say this. I think most of the fake news controversy is nonsense. Um, And my suspicion here, and it's not that there is no fake news. Uh, The fact of the matter is there's always been sort of bunk news out there. People have always believed phony things. Um, I think, if anything, the internet doesn't sort of supercharge fake news. Uh, I think what the internet actually does for you is it gives you both the capacity to spread, well, it's the capacity to spread any piece of information very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, So if it's fake, sure, it gets out there and it gets out there fast, but it can also be refuted pretty quickly as well. Um, so people have always believed yeah, usually insane the rep- things. Like the reputation, even in just print media, mm-hmm. the correction is on the headline is on page one. The sure. correction is on page twenty. Yeah, yeah. You know, but, like but so once is, it's already out there, it's out there. Well, this is the other thing. I mean, I mm-hmm. think untruth is is a problem that has always existed. Is the first point. The second thing, though, is is like a second or third order problem. Like the fundamental issue. Like has to do with people's willingness to outsource their critical thinking, the responsibility right. of of sort of forging an opinion. And relatedly, I think there's any number of problems with the way people actually think about the media, both with respect to how journalists imagine themselves and with respect to what people imagine journalists are doing. The the <clears throat> holy grail of journalism is this thing like objectivity. Whatever, whatever that is. That is the holy grail. Right. That is the standard that we're supposed to be abiding by. Um, but objectivity is not a, it is not a destination. In a, in a way, it's perhaps not even something you can obtain. 
Um, at any any news story is a combination of facts, like we are in this room right now, sort of together. But the 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 facts are always combined with context. And what the hell is context? Like if you use a map, like there's context. Maps that are one to one are useless. If a map included every detail between here and Park Slope, that would be useless. We wouldn't be able to use it. There has to be some abstraction made. And there's determinations about what is important to include and what isn't important to include. Mm -hmm. And those determinations are always going to be somewhat subjective. There's always going to be some bias there. So what becomes important is what we do in science today. Like with the scientific method, you show your work. Uh, And I, I don't, I think the expectation that the news will somehow, there is no veneer on it. And it, there is a way to tell this story that is sort of free from any bias, that is free from, from any, uh, um, um, from any uh, sort of coloring from the individual themselves um, is part of the problem. You have to acknowledge that that coloring is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've also got to acknowledge that it that it will always be there. And the responsibility, the onus is always on you to not leave a news story knowing everything about this topic because you won't, but to leave a news story with more questions about sort of what else should I be thinking? Yeah. About? What questions were missed? Absolutely. And we get that question on a regular basis. You know, what is a true news site? What's a what's an actual trusted form of journalism? Everything is editorialized now more than ever because it's a, it's a clickbait culture. And the Washington Post recently fall, uh, fell into this trap regarding a story in Burlington, Vermont, about Russia's hacking That's right. uh, into a uh, into a laptop computer. Well, some, I mean, you, get, you could argue that it wasn't that they fell into a trap. You could argue that they completely and totally misled people willingly as far as the story went in order to get clicks. For those of you who don't right. know, is that there was the Washington Post record, or, uh, released a story uh, that said that Russian hackers had infiltrated the electricity grid in Vermont when in reality the actual story yeah. was that uh, the Department of Homeland Security had sent out a notice uh, saying like, hey, listen, here's the Russian malware that was used to infiltrate the DNC. Uh, please report back if any of your machines have that malware. Uh, and that power station reported back that one of their machines did in fact have that malware but it was a laptop that was not connected to the power grid whatsoever and the Washington Post would have known that if they would have actually asked the electricity well, they, company well, well, in is, question. But this is, this is important because there's a distinction between sort of willing, willfully misleading and just not doing a good job. True. And, and, and even here, like it's so easy to ascribe motivations to people and to, to sort of piece together the details of the story. But you're right. Like context matters. Yeah. And context they didn't, ma- exactly. They didn't provide sufficient context. The onus, however, is always on the reader, listener, viewer yeah, to say, say what questions weren't answered. I saw that story. I hadn't seen the retraction yet, actually. Um, I, I just heard about that about but an hour ago. Even the retraction sure. was still a little half yeah, but, yeah. but But I saw the story and immediately when I saw it, there were a half dozen questions that came to mind. Yeah. Like, this is not enough right. for us to prove much of anything well, conclusively. And I want to clarify, the reason I called it was a, uh, a trap is just because, you know, these these stories, uh, they will be scooped up by other sources and they will uh-huh. be ran by other sources. And uh, you you have to go with the, uh, the headline that the editors put on these articles has to be extremely flamboyant. It has to be, you know, the National sure. Enquirer in 2016 came across as a rational newspaper. It was one of the only <laughs> ones that endorsed Donald Trump. So I don't know how rational. Yeah. When I say rational, I mean in the in the minds of the people 
this is a this is a uh, magazine that I'm fairly certain still discusses how there's ghosts on a ship in the bottom of the sea, <laughs> and we have not saved those ghosts from their sea hell. <laughs> and I think at some point we're going to need to address that issue. They're just but asking questions. They're just asking. I know. Just asking. Just questions. asking. Questions. Did did Ted Cruz's father kill Kennedy? Obviously, just a question. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So they do fall into that trap, though, and it is this vicious cycle. Uh, if these institutions want to survive in the technological landscape uh, that we have now, what are they to do? Because good news, uh, you know, the Economist is still out there, but their readership isn't going through the roof anytime soon. Absolutely well, the, the Washington Post. I mean, the most recent news out of there with respect to their profitability is that they are making more money and that they are expanding their news operations. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they're um, making more money by being the record or by being the paper of anti-Russian hysteria. I mean, even we <laughs> seriously, right. even we fell into this because we reported the uh, the proper not story uh, about Russian hackers and all mm-hmm. that. And the Washington Post came out uh, with this story full force, uh, and it came out later that maybe the source itself wasn't extremely mm-hmm. reliable. And the Washington Post really is running as many stories as they possibly can, uh, not necessarily anti-Russian, but anti like whipping up hysteria, being yeah. pe- making people afraid of Russians again. And if they are the paper that makes people afraid of Russians again, every time there's an anti-Russian story, then the Washington Post readership goes through the roof. And we don't have to make it about one issue, uh, and we don't have to make it about one publication. I mean, that there is, however, a persistent um, and sort of dominant idea out there that first is what's important. Exactly. That first is best. Yeah. And um, I also want to thank uh, listener Daniel Mackey for uh, bringing that Russian, t- bringing that Washington Post story to my attention. Thank you, Daniel Mackey. And if you want to see uh, Camille and I, Camille and I talking about this on Red Eye, I put a link on my new BenKissel.com. Hey. Which is, I tried to find only the thinnest pictures of me <laughs> to put on the front page, and it was extremely hard. Um, but if you go and uh, do the television link, there's a fun little conversation conversation that we had I thought that was actually a great uh, moment in the show oh good so um, yeah I mean that's that's the interesting thing now because uh, like you were talking about it's more of what isn't being discussed by the you know especially the news networks uh, you know what stories they choose not to uh, talk about what stories they choose to ignore that really sculpt the overall narrative in the minds of the viewer do you feel like that is a bigger issue than actual um, bias uh, in its in itself you know because a lot of times you'll watch Fox News and the stories they cover they're not necessarily wrong in the covering of them they'll just refuse to acknowledge uh, we can talk a little <laughs> bit about race here uh, you know police brutality amongst minority communities there's a great documentary right now called um, Do Not Resist, all about the militarization of police, the 1033 program. They they uh, highlight a town in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. Uh, not in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, in Wisconsin. And uh, it's a town of a very, very small number, no murders for like 16 years, and they have a tank mm-hmm. for no reason. Fascinating stuff. Um, so Fox News might not cover that. But MSNBC will, but then they won't cover, you know, um, how serious ISIS is or something uh, like that. So what are your thoughts and and what the role is now of media? Is it okay for them? And I do agree with you. The onus is always on the reader. We have to be smart enough. It's easier than ever to find new information. Uh, But at the same time, it's also easier than ever to just maintain your confirmation bias and not get out of your bubble. Yeah, yeah. no, easy, easy is precisely the, the right word for that because it is easy for the journalists to just deliver this to you right. and it's it's what you want from a cognitive exactly. sort of evolutionary standpoint you want things that are going to confirm your sentiments about the universe yeah, right. we all want um, to feel so, good mm-hmm. so what should they do um i mean i know what i want them to do what do you want them to um, do i want them to to be more forthright about the fact that they have a perspective i mm-hmm. want them to provide some of the detail 
with respect to what they thought going into this story, the way that they sort of de- de- designed the study, the points of emphasis. Um, and at the end of this story, what I'm most interested in isn't so much you know, the hot take at the end of the article, mm-hmm. it's the three or four questions that I ought to be considering right. after reading something like this. I would like to see that um, in, in most, uh, from most media organizations, like an emphasis on that and, and just a general sensibility that understanding <clears throat> the world is not an end point. It mm-hmm. is a journey. It right. is something that you are constantly doing. You are constantly expanding your, your understanding of these narratives. Sure. And, and I just want, I want that sort of that sort of contest broadly speaking well let's the, put the bias I, doesn't bother yeah. me is, okay. is is sort of an important secondary sure. point I, I don't care if you're biased so long as you show your work I can sort this the rest of this out for myself so that there is the media but I think the much harder thing is cultivating a broader understanding among the public right of well let's how to what, read the news and listen to it and consume it well so let's take what you're saying and put it in the context of race of uh, police uh, and militarization and sure. uh, and how the media has been covering it MSNBC is obviously going going to uh, side with uh, D-Ray and people like that, and, and rightfully so. The Black Lives Matters movement does make a lot of very valid points, although uh, there does seem to be some corruption some in them. the ranks uh, right now. But of course, Fox News is going to be very, there's a war on cops and, uh, and and much more aggressive to the right. And CNN is somewhere muddled in the middle, uh, which I think they're the most nefarious network because they still pretend as if they're unbiased, even though they ooze bias. But So what do you think <laughs> as far as the context of that situation, a very large situation, I understand, and how the media has been presenting it, do you think it's been a disservice because you could argue under Obama race relations in this nation seem to be worse off than ever before. Of course, that's not the case. Uh, But in our lifetime, it feels that way because we have a Facebook Live uh, situation happening where uh, the man in Minnesota was just murdered in front of our eyes Mm -hmm. uh, by an officer and things like that. Put it in context what you're saying as far as that topic. Well, I mean, it's certainly with respect to to like race um in this country, the tenor of our conversations um, is a lot more dire and stark. Mm -hmm. We were at a much more optimistic point um, back when we had the first first black president, Bill Clinton, um, when we talked about race in most contexts. There were people who were actually using this phrase post-racial a lot back then. Mm -hmm. Now the dominant phrase amongst like the Black Lives Matter crowd is white supremacy, which is a phrase that most people don't don't quite understand um, in terms of the way that they're using it. Um, well, how are they using that term? Because you're right, that term has been really, th- it's thrown around uh, very regularly. And uh-huh. There's this character named uh, Spencer, who is out there, sort of the head of the white nationalist movement. I got into a rabbit hole and watched some of his YouTube, and he, you know, he just expresses how he, he just believes that the white race should be its own identity and should be uh, more exclusive, and yeah, the, yeah. The, the fact that they get demonized for wanting that sort of um, sort of more of a uh, segregated culture, or you know, uh, is, is, they're demonized for it. What do you think a white uh, supremacy means? Okay, so we'll, let's let's go there, then we'll sort of arrive at the uh, the Black Lives Matter stuff. Um, white supremacy in tradition, in a traditional sense, I mean, we think about the Ku Klux Klan, mm-hmm. like the the notion that blacks are and other races are inferior to the white race, that the white race ought to dominate because it is the best genetically, whatever reason, mystically, who cares? Mm -hmm. Um, White supremacy in a contemporary context, um, when the Black Lives Matter folks use it to refer to Bernie Sanders, for example, which has happened, um, what they are actually talking about- That he is a representation of white supremacy? Yes, that he he embodies it, that he's defending it, what they're actually talking about- Well, I do have to say he he does embody it. (laughs) Very white body, very 74-year-old white man body. But not white supremacy. And and I think what, 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 what people actually mean when they talk about white supremacy is sort of the net- outcome 
of sort of the historical things that have unfolded in the United mm-hmm. States, the institutions that exist today, the distribution of wealth as it exists today, mm-hmm. um, the the laws as they exist today, mm-hmm. have everything to do with sort of slavery and the fact that Europeans have been in charge of things. Mm-hmm. Therefore, today, reality, mm-hmm. the universe we exist in, all of our laws are essentially a consequence of white supremacy. Sure. They are white supremacist. Sure. Um, it is convoluted. Um, and in my estimation, it's rather silly. It is a myopic way to look at the world. And it's important to sort of note why it's myopic. Right. Um, which is history didn't begin uh, when slavery began in the United States, when it was introduced in the United States. Slavery existed before that. Mm-hmm. Most people throughout most of history have suffered all sorts of privations and destitutions and servitude, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time that slavery was alive and well in the United States, and actually at the period at which it was being abolished here, um, we actually had serfdom in uh, Russia. And Russian serfdom was even larger in terms of the number of people that were in serfdom. And mm-hmm. the differentiation between the two things in terms of whether or not we would call this slavery, um, pretty, pretty modest. Most people have been enslaved. Most people have been taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. If you look back at our ancestry, it's not going to be much different. Um, right. So I think having being able to acknowledge that history is broad and complex and that the thing that so many people prize today, like freedom, is, as Milton Friedman put it, a rare and delicate plant. I think gives you a better context for understanding the world that we live in uh, and for talking about concepts like justice. But but to your point, though, I mean, obviously, we have 2.5 million people in prison at any given day in this country right Uh now. Many of them privatized prisons, which I think is absolutely atrocious. Well, not not Uh, not that many, quite frankly. some of them. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, less less than less than 10 percent. There's no denying that uh, the people in those uh, prisons tend to be uh, non-white. They tend to be people of color. That's not Um, that's not that's not really true either. They they go into that then. Yeah. So they they are. They are, as a rule, um, overrepresented as a percentage of the population. But there are still lots and lots of white folk in prison. Yes, of course. Um, and and I think this is this is a this is an important and meaningful distinction. And and we can perhaps pivot to the Black Lives Matter movement and specifically to uh, sort of the police shooting stuff. Yeah, of course. And, and, and let me provide this context. Right, I, generally speaking, am deeply concerned about the police having interactions with citizens that result in citizens getting dead needlessly or being assaulted needlessly. I am deeply concerned about that. I want to see reforms that make that situation better. Right. Full stop. What I am also concerned about, however, are places where people inject race into conversations that don't necessarily illuminate things and that don't make it easier for us to arrive at solutions. Sure. The Black Lives Matter movement, for the most part, I think, has been in many cases predominantly concerned with ascertaining sort of the motivation of police as they are doing things, Mm -hmm. bad or good. Like, is this guy who got shot by the police or who was choked to death outside of a bodega in New York City, Mm -hmm. was he choked to death because the police are explicitly or secretly racist? I don't care. Like, that doesn't matter to me. Whether or not they well, were see, racist no, isn't the important factor. What's wait, important is there, that his civil rights were violated right. and that he was killed. And the question is, what do we do about, but aren't, aren't about fixing civil, that? And actually, I'm yeah. not, I, 
I said his civil rights were violated. I'm not making a statement about that particular, the Eric Garner case in particular. I'm, I'm using it as But a, wouldn't as racism be the motivator that would then lead to the result of his civil rights being violated? Well, no, that's just it. It's not. I mean, what was the actual, let's well, take the Eric windows, Garner, that was let's take the Eric Garner thing, but even there, it's yeah. narrower, right? Sure. It is here. We have these rules that make it necessary for armed men, agents of the state, mm-hmm. to show up and harass people on street corners for doing what? Selling individual cigarettes. Right. The question is, do we actually need laws like that? Well, no. We, that's the, that right. is a. And when I we talk about incarceration, like mass incarceration in this country, which is complicated, it is not just mm-hmm. a result of the drug war. But there is no doubt that the homicide rate in this country. And overall, like the number of people that we have in prison in this country has a very significant relationship, correlation, if you will, um, with the fact that we have made it illegal for people to sell and use various forms of narcotics in but this country. But we know for a fact there are two different rules. There are rules. I mean, I, if I was stopped uh, doing a stop and frisk, uh, during a stop and frisk, uh, at any age, I would have had a great probability of having some illegal substance on me, most likely uh-huh. marijuana. Right. But they don't stop me. So it is, And you think so they the don't laws, stop you and they do stop me. That's what you think. I would assume that if we were both walking up in Harlem, uh, I would be less likely to be stopped than you. Okay, well, this and is... I have been arrested many times, but for things I did. Yeah. Um, so I, I do think there is a little bit more of a predatory practice because if you look at what's happened now with the law being an extension of the tax, uh, you know, which is what happened in Ferguson. I mean, they were making a huge amounts of cash uh, for their municipality. So based we're, off so of we're local neighboring municipalities. Stuff. But when you monetize uh, human lives, and when you monetize, uh, you know having them incarcerated or, you know, stopping them so then you can warrant a ticket or do whatever, uh, I think it becomes a little bit of a slippery slope. And if you are an officer, who specifically with quotas, which I'm completely against quotas, if you do need to get 10 arrests in a day, you're not going to Williamsburg, Brooklyn. You're going to the pink units. Well, you're, you're opening up a lot of threads there. And, and I'm, I'm fine with that because conversations like this tend to get, they spider out. Um, but you mentioned like profits, and then we talked about sort of stop and frisk. Well, and I'm we also saying talked because about they, Harlem. they go to I, the place that is most likely well, to, is, uh, you know, achieve their goals. I hear you. So let's let's do this first, right? A high crime area that happens to be predominantly black is going to have a greater police presence than a area that is less high crime. Sure. Whatever the race of those people. In that high crime area, you are almost certainly going to get more stops. But it's a vicious it cycle also, because they're look, also prosecuting not, people for selling Lucy's I'm and, not, in Williamsburg. I think you get away with it. I am not. I am not saying that there isn't sort of a cyclical relationship there. What I'm mm-hmm. suggesting here is whether or not race is what is motivating people to show up in those places is not the principal concern. Mm-hmm. Like you can actually address this problem. You can describe the problem. You can understand the problem. The fundamental problem that people are, as you put it, needlessly being harassed, mm-hmm. put, being put under, being put in jail, being endangered in dangerous situations with with agents of the state who, even if they're on their best day doing their job the right way, people could get dead because they have guns. Of course, yeah. You want to minimize interactions. What you need is fundamental reforms. Exactly. You can't wave a wand and make people not be biased if they have some secret. Uh, sub uh, subconscious bias uh, about people who happen to have dark skin. Right, you can't do it. So I don't know that 
beating the drum loudly and asserting <clears throat> confidently <clears throat> and explicitly, well, it's obviously racism because look at the way in which these people are overrepresented in the stats. Sure. The reason I, I arrive there and the reason I usually look at these stats where, in fact, yes, black people are overrepresented in many of them and minorities, some minority groups, um, is for several reasons. But one important reason is that black people are overrepresented in all crime stats, both as the victims and the perpetrators mm -hmm. of crimes relative to their proportion of the population, which doesn't make it right, but which does suggest that if, in fact, they are showing up more in these other areas, that it might have something to do with the fact that they are interacting with the police more frequently. Right. Well, I mean, so if you look through it, if you look at it from an economic lens, I think you'll have the exact same disparity of, uh, of incarceration, regardless of race. But if you do this, look at this it through... This is actually very true um, in a lot of respects, except that... The fact that poverty in many black in the black community in mm -hmm. that particular demographic is urbanized as opposed to rural means that they have very different sorts of uh, criminal manifestations. The drug well, the drug trade manifests itself in different ways because of regional factors. So it's course. complicated. And, you know, I was just in Wyoming over the holidays and everybody was, you know, strapped to the teeth like they were the next Rambo. And <laughs> if you saw somebody walking around in a uh, in a more urban place with the amount of military uh, armory that they had, they would be uh, arrested immediately yes, yes, and yes. face a mandatory of three and a half years. So the laws do, uh, you know, they, they obviously dictate reality. Um, but if you do see it, the world through the racial lens, and I understand what you're saying because I really I, I, I love your point of view, but if you do see it through the racial lens and you are pointing out these flaws in the system, is it a problem uh, when it actually is trying to do, hearkening back to what you were talking about via reform, if that is a way to get some reform? Because people are very racially motivated and people are very sensitive uh, to the hot topic of race, and it does get conversations going. So mm -hmm. if they, if uh, you know, BLM, uh, BLM, Black Lives Matter, if they're able to get some reform because they view the world through a racial uh, injustice lens, isn't that a good thing? That I mean, that presumes that that's what's happening. I right. mean, the, the other possibility is that you balkanize issues and that mm. by screaming Black Lives Matter and asserting that police are shooting black people because they're racist, you actually create a counter narrative. And the counter narrative is Blue Lives Matter. Sure. And ultimately, what we're really concerned about here is protecting the cops. And now you have teams. And now this right. tribal squabble mm -hmm. is no longer fundamentally about reform. And look, I, this may not be popular to say, but on both sides, there are people who don't fundamentally care about sort of reform. What they care sure. about is crusading. And crusading is fun. It feels good. But it doesn't yeah. fix a damn thing. And this is mm. critically important. We are talking loudly about this. But I, And I talked about this on the podcast a couple of weeks back. Barack Obama has been president of the United States for eight years. Um, almost. Yeah. He has been president of the United States. I mean, it's been more than two years since Eric Garner and Mike Brown mm -hmm. were killed in their separate incidences in New York and Ferguson. Do you know that just in October of this year, the Justice Department finally decided that it might be a good idea to enact some sort of policy to keep track of the number of people who were, I don't know, shot and killed by police departments across around the country. The Justice Department. And this I mean, is a just this is yeah. Obama's Justice Department. He doesn't need yeah. any help to do that. What's worse is not only did they just get around to instituting those policies or to issuing those policies, mm -hmm. the policies are total bullshit. Like they well, don't they don't actually they don't actually do anything. They're I agree completely with hollow you. and vapid. And and yeah. I think that what the conversation dominated by 
the obsession with whether or not it's racism and racial bias Mm -hmm. has done is given us a lot of false positives. It's giving us a lot of conversation, a loud cacophony, Mm -hmm. but it hasn't given us much in the way of fundamental and meaningful reform. Certainly not the kind that I would expect to see if someone was interested in building bridges and coalitions. I agree with you. I do think there is a Obama facade of wanting to be uh, more open minded regarding prisoners and uh, prison reform. Uh, But yes, to your point, Eric Holder has done nothing to help out that situation whatsoever. He visited some people uh, in prison recently. It was a very symbolic gesture, and I did think it was important. Barack Obama. no, that's what yeah, yeah, that's okay, what I meant. Yes. Uh, you know, Obama visited people in prison, which I thought was a great symbolic gesture. I think it's important to see our commander in chief in that situation. Very bold and brave of him to do that. But what reforms would you not, you not have so actually? Brave. I mean, you've got the Secret Service and all but, sorts of other uh, stuff. Yes, that's very even, true. He even was, the damn, he was even fine. the damn commutations that he's been making and and making a big deal about it because yes. he's doing so many more than anyone else. That's not brave either. He waited well, until no. the end of his damn yes, second term to yes. start letting people out of prison. If in fact people are in prison yes. who shouldn't be in prison, who are there for nonviolent offenses, right? Mm-hmm. Be brave. Let them out right. as soon as you are humanly able to do so. And if you have to wait until you've won your second term, then do that. But if you wait until the end of the eight years, mm-hmm. you are a coward. And I don't care if it's better. I don't care if it is better than his predecessors. What matters is if it's right. And the bottom line yeah. is he has been wrong on most things. Um, when he it has comes been to this subject. Yes, on, yeah. on, when it comes to this subject. And quite frankly, the, the veneer of sort of the the racial interest, mm-hmm. the veneer of tribal uh, sort of loyalty, of I care deeply about these issues, I could speak to them, the veneer of people in the streets, mm-hmm. angry and screaming and flailing about this issue on the basis of race alone, especially when they are oftentimes peddling things that are de- highly debatable or completely dubious. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that doesn't help the cause of actual scoring reform, which is what I care about. I care about reform. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you what reforms you want to see Sorry, put in place. Um, no, I love it. That's that's wonderful. Right. Uh, but it is interesting. You talk about tribalism. When I was in Wyoming, to harken back to that, there was a flag, <laughs> and it had a blue line through it. And I was like, what the hell is this flag? And I Googled it, and it turns out that's a pro-police flag. Mm-hmm. And something hit me about it, how everyone now, we have the don't tread on me flag. We have uh, you know all the symbolism, all the branding behind these political movements is entrenching people further into their point of view. Sure. They literally yeah. have a flag. And for some reason, that symbol you know, of, of unity and the collective thought, which is what a flag is supposed to represent, was kind of, you know, it, it, it kind of unnerved me a little bit um, because people are becoming so tribal and, uh, and they, they don't seem to have any motivation or reason to leave their beliefs because these beliefs are rewarded, again, going back a little bit to clickbait and those sorts of things. It mm-hmm. all comes back to the internet. Oh, so yeah. much of this stuff comes yes. back to the internet. The tribalism comes back to the internet because I hear me out here. I think a lot of people, Ameri- like human beings, are tribal creatures. Mm-hmm. That that's just a, an absolute fact. And right now, people are so isolated in their own personal lives. People are extremely isolated, and so they find different tribes that speak to them on the internet. And so they absolutely like they really identify with this stuff because they feel like they belong to something. Uh, and when they feel like they belong to something, they feel very strongly about that. Thing. 
anything, but they don't have the courage to actually go out and do anything about it. So they talk very loudly about it on the internet and piss other people off. And the thing is about the internet is that you were talking earlier about the 1990s, mm-hmm. talking about the post-racial thing. Mm-hmm. We were never post-racial. The I don't only know what reason, the hell that term exactly, means. but we were never post-racial. That, you know, those feelings were still there. The the racial relations that we have right now in the country, at least what's gone on in the last 10 years, I don't think it's that it was brought to the surface by having a black president. I think it was brought to the surface because we were all able to actually say what we actually think on the internet anonymously. And the more people talk about that stuff, the more it bubbles mm. up feelings of resentment, the more it bubbles up feelings of hatred, and the more it makes people really stick to their side even more, which drives us apart even further. And less that's, reform to be had. Yeah, and less yeah. reform to be had. You know, it's like that's sure. the great irony of the internet is that it was supposed to bring us all together, but I think for the most part, the internet is driving us apart. Yeah, I, I disagree with virtually all of that. Okay. Um, <laughs> but there was a lot there. All right. We'll go into so it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. What do you, what do you disagree about? So, I mean, first, what I don't disagree with is the acknowledgement you, you made with respect to the fact that we are tribalists. As a species, we are tribalists. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know that people are more isolated today because of the internet. I don't think that's true at all. No, no, no. I didn't say uh, I didn't say they were isolated because of the internet. Well, well, I just you, said that they said were that I just said being, they were isolated. Maybe, period. But, you said, but well, I, I think, think you said more isolated than than ever before I think and a lot of the reason why is the internet and yeah. that part really. of the reason why and I, and I think what you were asserting is sort of the narrative that that there is a great deal of racism out there and racial resentment and that people are essentially spewing it anonymously on the internet and that that somehow is what well, happened in this No, I heard election. it more of a people no, are more I didn't, okay, I didn't mention anything well, about the you election. You didn't, but you said something, but you did go. No, I just did, mean that racism never went away. It's not that we're more racist now than we ever were. Just I just saying, think that we're talking, I think yeah, people are talking about it okay, more. Okay, well this, this, okay, so maybe this is the distinction and you can, you can help me understand what you're trying to, what you're trying to get across. I don't think people are more racist today. I don't think that people that I don't think that there has been sort of a continual sort of baseline of racism that exists in America. I think people have gotten progressively less racist. um, And I think that that is demonstrably true. Um, And the fact that people are tweeting things from eggs on Twitter or behind sort of phony avatars and the fact that people are genuinely outraged and apoplectic about the fact that anonymous strangers are saying things on the internet that are racist. Hell, you could get fired from your job for using the word niggardly, which means cheap, yeah. which has nothing to do with that other word. Well, there was somebody. I don't know if I can say it because I don't want to offend anyone in the room, but I don't actually give a crap about it because it is a popular word that is said routinely in hip-hop music. Well, you can say whatever you want to say, but there was a fella, <laughs> okay. I believe it was with Giuliani's campaign, who said the, uh, the term that uh, I will not say, just what, because niggardly? I just don't want to say it. Yeah. Niggardly? And no, was it, was, uh, it, was, uh, it was Washington, D.C., actually. Was it D.C.? It was working for the mayor of Washington, D.C., oh, okay. and he was fired. He was eventually rehired, but only after... He had already been fired. It had well, been days, and someone sure. pointed out that this is absurd. I think what, uh, well, I'm, what my interpretation of what Marcus was saying was more of a philosoph- uh, philosophical um, tribalism has occurred, right? So people are coming together and they're being rewarded, uh, you know, for participating and being A plus students in their own very rigid political viewpoints. And so there isn't really a, uh, a motivation or a benefit to go outside of your political viewpoint. Look what happened to Glenn Beck when all of a sudden he became a liberal. His entire brand is over, he's done. I don't understand what the hell he was thinking going, uh, you know, being one of the creators of the Tea Party to begin with. But that was that was his M.O. at the time. 
when it comes to social media, uh, that I think that was uh, a good point. Um, when it comes to your ideas of actual reform, though, I would love to hear what you would want to see put in place on a practical level, because that's where we're always encouraging people to run for city council and and uh, and get involved actively in their community. Because at the end of the day, it's it's not simple, but it's doable. It's a human institution run by humans. You're a human. Be a part of it. What would you like to see actual uh, – what, what would be some of the reforms you would like to actually see tangibly put in place? And do you think now coming in with Donald Trump, who I'm not actually uh, – I don't believe that he is this staunch conservative, but somebody like Jeff Sessions is. And he is uh, – to me, he's a bit of a nefarious choice because he's very much uh, you know, in, in, the, uh, in the old school way of thinking regarding policing and, uh, and how he views the world. Yeah, so I mean, what would you actually like to see the reform? And do you think because now Obama's gone, Holder is out of there? Um, although, yeah. Um, do you think there's is all hope lost? Uh, well, I mean, I, I didn't have a great deal of hope for Obama and Holder. Um, you didn't read any, the sign; anyways. it was hope and change. Yeah, <laughs> you, didn't, yeah no. you didn't get the it was real sticker. fucking big. Look, Matt. for me, I mean, it's it's about it's about fundamental reforms. Like, if you actually want to see meaningful change, you need fundamental reforms. And getting rid of like uh, the crack versus powder cocaine sentencing disparity yeah. is is cute. Um, and well, I think it's it's not so look, cute to those I'm, people who are in prison no, for look, a very I'm long time. I'm saying it's cute relative to ending the drug war. Sure. Right. And that is the sort of fundamental reform that I am interested in. I don't think I don't think drugs should be criminalized. And I think criminalizing drugs has any number of really nasty repercussions. Um, Part of those repercussions are the militarization of police forces, as you pointed out before. Um, So if you're interested Mm -hmm. in getting those tanks out of those communities, the SWAT teams might not need to be so heavily damn armed um, if there isn't this illegal drug trade taking place. Well, I mean, they basically, the police in these uh, small municipalities basically flip through a, 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 a magazine, you know, mm-hmm. it's a, uh-huh. uh, it's just a wonderful, fantastic magazine for them. And they circle what they want, like I used to do with a WWF <laughs> magazine regarding what T-shirt I wanted to get, uh, you know, that month if I was good enough to uh, deserve one. Uh, it's 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 total madness. Yeah, and that's but that it also goes as well. It's the war on terrorism, the war on drugs, and the fact that Congress refuses to not give the military an inflated budget that they don't need. So they're sending over brand new tanks that only maybe had one run or something like that in Iraq or God knows where else we are, and uh, and they're they're brand new perfect tanks that the military could theoretically just continue to use. So it is this massive problem. Do you feel like we have to stop fetishizing the military in this country? Because that, to me, is what it is. You have these congressmen uh, and women who just don't want to have a black mark saying that they didn't give an appropriations bill, they didn't sign one, to give the military 35 new tanks because they don't want to be perceived as weak on terror, even though it's all nonsense. And it's this fetishization of the military that I think is a part of it. Yes. So do you feel like, what, I mean, <laughs> what do we have to change with that? Uh, and how do you how do you actually do it? Because I mean, if we do it, if you if you look at these things, uh, you know, racially, which is what, uh, you know how it's being looked at, mm-hmm. um, I think they they do have the end result. I think is similar to or their end game. If you have to take their motivations as pure and true, is to get people who are innocent out of prisons and create what the ideal of this nation was supposed to be: create a place where freedom is actually a uh, not just an ideology but a practiced way of life. Sure, sure. I mean, it, it might be helpful if we didn't if we didn't live in a moment uh, when people conflate ideas like democracy and and liberty like those are not the same thing uh, at all like having the ability to to vote on something and and having the majority's opinion prevail um, in essentially any area of life at this point um, mm-hmm. is not the same thing as freedom and that's that's an important distinction so I, I wish people understood that um, but what but, is the distinction between the two uh well the just dis- 
the distinction is, I mean, you have sort of the freedom to actually live your life as you want to. You have the freedom right. to record your podcast here. Um, democracy is people come along and they make rules and they make rules on the basis of what the majority wants. So 51% of the population tells the other 49% of the population, do as we say, not as you would do. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be that you are doing something uh, that is potentially endangering someone else's lives or imperiling their ability to live their life as they want. It could just be that you want to record a podcast in a way that has been decided uh, ought to be illegal. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, democracy, I mean, it doesn't even need, even need to be 51% of the population. It only needs to be a majority of the people who actually voted, uh, which is even worse uh, in some respect, but not really, not materially. Um, I, I think that the issue that we have in this country with democracy, with the way that we fetishize democracy, to borrow a word that was just used appropriately and well, um, is not fetishize democracy. Like the, the relationship most of us have mm. with democracy is not unlike the relationship some of our ancestors had and some people in other parts of the world have with the divine right of kings. Like the precept, the principle that the reason why he is the ruler or she, but mostly he, mm -hmm. is because God would have it be so. And it has always been so. And the principle that what the majority mm -hmm. wants, it shall have, is also inherently dangerous. Uh, and the fact that we live in a constitutional republic, uh, but more often than not, people refer to it as a democracy does, I think, is indicative of the fact that we seem to have forgotten that what makes us free is the checks and the balances, this this balancing act. The, the hope is that you could have some accountability between the people and the government, that the document, the Constitution, is fundamentally about what the government cannot do. Um, and that is an important and meaningful distinction that I think most people forget. Well, that's interesting. So or ignore or don't know. Well, maybe <laughs> we could blow that out a little bit to the Electoral College debate that's happening right now because people on the left are extremely livid. Hillary Clinton, I believe she got 46 million and Donald Trump got 44 million uh, votes or maybe, no, it was 62 and 65 million, something, something like that. Something like that. I think it was 62 million and 65 million. Yeah, yeah. Um, roughly. E either uh, way, and a, a lot of, people are of like, the population making the decision essentially for everyone else. Well, but other individuals <laughs> for the most part, except for felons who I do believe should be allowed to vote, but a lot of people just sit on their hands. And I, you could argue it's a proper sample size to, uh, you know, you don't know if the uh, if it would have changed too much. Although uh, maybe Gary Johnson could have gotten that 5%. Oh, you're still and there with the Gare Bear. I love Gare Bear. <laughs> what is Aleppo? Just Gare Bear. Just getting stoned right now. Just loving his life. Never wearing shoes. So. On I top, top so. of a mountain. I bet he, he is. Oh, he deserves perfect. it. I hope He's so. He's climbed <laughs> so many mountains, it's ridiculous. Um, but what do you think as far as our, our as our system is set up? Do you, would you like to see a popular vote, as a lot of people are wanting right now, because their candidate lost? Or do you think the Electoral College still serves a valid purpose? And uh, it's an important, um, I guess, deterrent from what you're talking about, mm -hmm. which is, I think, a lot of the um, arguments against the popular vote is that the majority will simply rule everything and uh, the smaller states will once again not matter whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the distinction isn't all that important to me. I am not uniquely concerned about the Electoral College because I don't respect um, the sort of majority's right to determine how I live my life in any number of important ways. Oh, you're an anarchist. I am a I am a philosophically an, anar an anarcho-capitalist, but I'm also a pragmatist. Okay. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we should wave a wand and that there shouldn't be any government tomorrow. I, mm -hmm. I know that that is impossible. Um, I will say that advocating for and strenuously for like a limited government, one that is that is constrained in important respects 
is precisely the sort of thing that limits a lot of these second order and third order problems that we end up talking about, like mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can fix what's broken with Congress, with military appropriations and everything else. The incentives, things are working as you would expect as a consequence of incentives. You want to talk about the prisons and the fact that there is sort of profit associated with prisons. Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter is that corporations don't make much money from prisons that less than 10% of prisons are privately owned, last time I checked. And what's really interesting is that the people who dominate um, sort of prison policy in a place like California are public employee unions, right? Hmm. So money matters, but politics matters more. Sure. And again, as I said, I think the principle, the, the, the solution, not to be too simplistic about it because complex things are complex. Like, By nature, <laughs> to be, yeah. To be tautological, but in, in an important way, um, I think that limiting the scope of government and generally having people have an appreciation for how complicated the universe is, for how complicated really big problems are to fix, will mean that they will perhaps trust a little less the bureaucrat who promises them the moon and the stars if only you vote for me. Um, And they will perhaps be a little less inclined to say, you know what, what I am going to do, I am going to go vote for that guy who says he'll give me 20% of this other dude's money because there couldn't possibly be any adverse consequences to that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's, you know, in a nutshell, what I'm interested in, a a world where the government is doing the least amount possible. So what would that look like then? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those strange things because unions are so tied to the government in so many states. Would you like to see them completely eradicated and have a similar situation to what Scott Walker has now in Wisconsin, which is called right to work, uh, which basically lifts all um, protections of teachers and things like that? And in some ways, I think we need to uh, treat our teachers a hell of a lot better. And I'm not necessarily against the teachers union, although I'm against, uh, you know, um, when they are allowed to be, uh, you know, what's it called? Strike. Not strike uh, after ten well, oh, tenure. 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 Yeah. I think tenure is a bit of a farce because I had some terrible college professors and all of them were tenured. <laughs> um, but well, what would you like to see then, well, actually, in a practical sense? Yeah, private and public unions are different. With a private union, I don't want them to have any special protections, um, i.e., like the law doesn't suggest that you can't fire someone for wanting to start a union. If you if I mm. if you work for me and you want to start a union, and I say I don't want that, I'm gonna fire you. I should be able to. There shouldn't be any special protections. Um, In like manner, there shouldn't be any special prohibitions. I don't think that it is the role of the state to say that, you know, the employer has to allow unions to exist or that the employer um, has uh, sort of the that you have the ability to sort of get a job someplace despite what a union is able to agree to with its uh, employer. Right. So if the if the workers at Boeing get together with Boeing and they draw up a contract that says, hey, you can't hire anyone unless they join the union and Boeing capitulates, mm-hmm. that's Boeing's business. Let them do what the hell they want. So that's the private sector. Mm-hmm. Right. With public sector, it is different. There is something meaningfully different about essentially being able to get together to lobby the government and mm-hmm. to, to fund essentially campaigns to support getting the government more and more money and giving yourself a, a bigger and bigger sort of kingdom to rule over and right. ever fatter checks because you work for the government. Um, it is it is there is an obvious sort of incentive to be corrupt. There is an obvious corrupting incentive there. Mm-hmm. And this is a problem for the teachers unions. I mean, are teachers unions fundamentally about students? Are they no, fundamentally about they educating students? Right. And, if not, what the hell are schools for? Like, what are they supposed right. to do? Well, um, does the teachers union serve the interests of students? I don't know about that. 
Um, what I do know is that even public schools, it's not obvious to me, are sort of the ideal solution. We've got plenty of failing public schools in communities across America that will never close um, despite the fact that they are failing. And that is a problem. So our Secretary of Education will now be Betsy DeVos. And obviously, uh-huh. you know, uh, she was sort of demonized for never sending her kids to public school and for being pro-charter school. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Um, um, I mean, my wife was the chief of staff at a public charter high school in Washington, D.C. I've long been sort of supportive of the of the charter school movement as a meaningful improvement over um, sort of just a, a monop a government run monopoly mm-hmm. um, education system. So it is you- not it is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least there, there is the possibility for bad schools to go out of business. Mm. Um, and, I, it's uh, I interesting think that's you meaningful. call them bi- business, out of business. Which I, well, I, think I mean, it is. It's that's a what thing. they are. Yeah. yeah, it's a thing. But what do you think about the argument against charter schools? And I want to get back to identity politics to just wrap this whole thing up after this. Uh-huh. But with charter schools, because this is, I'm, I'm pro charter school, and a lot of people will come with the argument that basically what they do is they purge uh, public schools of their most talented uh, people, put them into a charter school, and then of course the uh, the GPAs of that public school will maintain low and they won't have uh, increased funding or get extra assets because all the intelligent kids or supposed intelligent kids are now at a charter school (laughs) because they've been purged from the public school system, which is what a lot of people, that's why they're demonized uh, on a regular basis. But what do you think about that? If you have a smart child that is going to the neighborhood school um, and that neighborhood is awful and the school itself is awful, Mm -hmm. should your smart child be a prisoner to that school? That is the question. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the 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 what I heard you set up, what I hear when I hear that is, I think that your smart kid should have to stay in a shabby school mm. because that is where you live. And you know what? Either everyone succeeds or everyone fails. Tough luck. Um, right. And what the charter school thing does is give you an opportunity to say, to vote with your feet. Not everyone can leave and go to the same school. Some people won't leave. Some people will never even. What 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 shocked me about the charter schools in Washington D.C. is the number of parents who were so disinterested that they never bothered to even look at options. Hmm. They never bothered to even apply to get their kids into into other schools. I mean, I don't know that I want my kid to go to that school, and hmm. I don't know that anyone else has the right to insist that you must send your child to this local school. Um, that is that is disturbing to me. That is a lack of freedom. It mm. may be democratic as all hell, but it sure as hell ain't free. Right. Interesting. So uh, just to close it all out with identity politics, um, you know, regarding, uh, you know, the, the race and, all, you know, all these massive issues, uh, Black Lives Matters, unions, you could argue they're serving the exact same purpose, which is to express outrage from individuals who didn't previously feel as if their voice were being heard. Um, where do you think we go from here? How do we start to, like, sort of shatter and, and, and break down a little bit of the um, hardcore rhetoric and then also actually get these things to be proactive for society because uh, from what I'm understanding, if it's uh, correct your point of view, I think that you feel as if these hardened uh, individuals that are you know benefiting from their political points of view, the people who follow them, uh, they might not be getting the, uh, it might be a, a doing them a massive disservice. I mean, how do you feel like sure. uh, we have to uh, move forward here in 2017? Because honestly, it's January 2nd. We're recording this. I'm hungover <laughs> as all hell. 2016 was such a crazy blur of a year. And the fact that now we're going to live with our actions of 2016. Yeah. Now in 2017, it really does sort of sit on us, uh, sit on our chest a little bit heavier. Yeah. We're, 2017 is the year of consequence. This is the year that the, mm, the, 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 we'll the surreal year that was 2016. 2017 is the year of reality. Right. That's when everything that happened last year, everything 
everything that we said and everything that we did as a country is going to become a reality. Hmm. So final statements. Final statements. <laughs> like a, closing closing like a thoughts. Drunk lawyer. Final, yeah, I have a final statement. It's, it's day one, sir. Well, it's final. Uh, what do you, you want to see happening here as far as with these movements? Because, Camille, you're black, and you're supposed to support Black Lives Matter. Well, <laughs> Did you know is, that? This is, certainly, this is certainly the way it goes. Um, I, I have a, a fairly complex uh, relationship with, uh, with race and, uh, and identity. Um, I am Camille. I am a husband and a brother and a son and all sorts of important things. I'm an, an entrepreneur. I do media stuff. Um, I don't self-identify as as black in any sort of meaningful sense. Like the notion of sort of a, a racial sort of tribal of tribal loyalty on the basis of how I appear um, is is uh, anathema to me. I just don't do that. I don't well, traffic this point in that of view sort of get you Does this get uh, some blowback? I mean, well, I would it, assume that. Well, here's it would. here's the question: Should it? Because well, because I don't suspect looking sure. at the two of you and knowing what I know about America, I don't suspect that either one of you would feel very comfortable saying I'm proud to be white. Like I want to hear you utter the phrase if you are. I I, I don't think either one of you would be comfortable sure. uttering the statement white power. No, it, it but is, we would say I'm is, proud of our work. I'm proud of our podcast. Sure, exactly. Proud, yeah. Which is precisely I'm proud to what be who you I want. Am. There right, is something exactly. about mm, yes, tribalism is natural and normal in a sense, right? But it is also natural and normal to want to punch someone in the face who does something that you don't like. What we need to do is rise above those instincts. We need to be constantly working to try to rise above it. And what I see, unfortunately, is far too many places where we essentially reinforce Mm -hmm. these kind of ugly and silly and trite sentiments. Blackness isn't sort of uh, beautiful in um, like a, a metaf- metaphysical sense, right? There's not, I don't care about sort of racial identity. I don't care about sort of black girls rock. I'm not interested in that. Are you doing amazing things? Mm-hmm. And if you are, then you rock. And if you're not, then that is another problem entirely. I don't think people should be investing their sense of self-worth. I certainly don't think that they should be building their identities on the basis of their race. And if they are, I think that there are going to be any number of sort of shortcomings and consequences from that. So I hope that people will embrace sort of the complexity of the universe around them. Um, I hope when it comes to identity that we will think about the fact that we are all individuals and embrace that. Um, And I hope that we won't miss sort of the intersection of those two things. When you talk about sort of blackness in in the abstract, this just general idea of like blacks not doing well in this country, like one forgets that first-generation African-Americans who are immigrants from or the children of immigrants from uh, parts of Africa or Jamaica, the Caribbean, like they tend to outperform pretty much every other demographic in the country. They're black. Mm -hmm. Like, shouldn't they be subject to all the same like racial forces? There's something else going on here. Do you think um, and we miss a, yeah. we miss that complexity when we are sort of distracted by by the easy story. Easy doesn't mean better. Right. Um, Occam's razor. People get that wrong all the time. Right. It's supposed to be the simplest explanation is the right one. That's not the case. Mm. It's the simplest explanation, taking into account all relevant factors, the context, as to begin to to end where we began in a sense. Just that yeah. is the Occam's razor. So would you say there's a certain um, unintended consequence of creating the narrative of blacks being imprisoned, being overplaced, uh, being uh, impoverished? Is there an unintended consequence of making that uh, the narrative for blacks as a uh, as a general statement? Well, I think it's morally questionable. 
I mean, if the if the only issue here is that there are too many black people locked up, well, there is an easy way to fix that. Like we could just lock up a lot more white people. Sure. And then it's proportionally fine. Is everyone happy with that outcome? You shouldn't be. Right. Because we already have far too many people in prison. And the fact of the matter is, look, if in fact you bring evidence to me, right, that racial bias is the thing that's motivating all of this, I will say, all right, fine. But until we get there, we're talking about the wrong thing. The fact that I have to spend time sort of defending myself from people who say, well, why won't you just call it racism instead of like, okay, fine. So you disagree on that. Now let's talk about policy reform is evidence of the problem. It is Mm. a distraction. It is a distraction. Um, And worse than that, it could lead you to exactly the wrong solutions, phony solutions to real problems that matter. Well, hell yeah, dude. Thanks so much for coming on the show and expressing your point of view. Thank you. Yeah, I thanks, man. Uh, you can find Camille on Twitter, at Camille. It's just K-M-E-L-E. K-M-E-L-E. Yeah. And, uh, and that's it. And uh, anything else you want to plug? No. Uh, ch- come check out the uh, fifth column, uh, yeah. at We the Fifth. And of course, I am a, a partner at this media company called Freethink. We uh, awesome. make videos and do documentary stuff. So uh, check out freethinkmedia.com and... Uh, yeah, drop me a line. Let me know what you think. Awesome. And you can find Marcus Parks on Twitter, Instagram, everything Marcus Parks. I'm on Twitter at Ben Kissel, Instagram Ben Kissel one. I, I posted one picture. Good. So that was kind of exciting. And it worked with a dog. Congratulations. I, I feel good about yeah. it. Uh, you know, a little bit conflicted. Uh, but that's fine. So yeah, tweet at me. I, I'm uh, much more engaged on Twitter than any other social media platform. So tweet at me uh, about this episode and tweet at Camille and, uh, and Marcus Parks. And uh, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com.